Good morning. We're continuing. We're going to finish chapter 20 today, one way or the other, okay? Or we'll just stop, okay? John chapter 20. We've been discussing this under the concept, right, of adding up the results of the resurrection. What, what difference does the resurrection make? What, what results are there? And we've looked at several and kind of worked our way through that. Today, I want to jump right in on this event, uh, if you will, as it relates to Thomas. And we're going to look at this here in verses, uh, uh, we, we looked last week where Jesus uh, uh, revealed himself to the disciples, and then, but Thomas wasn't there, so we're going to look at that. So this is the topic or the idea that I want to look at is clarity in the midst of doubt. Clarity in the midst of doubt. Now, I, the, the idea of clarity here, or coming to some awareness or some new, new awareness, I don't know about you, but... My wife tells me it's just that I'm too busy, but man, my mind gets cloudier and cloudier every day. Anybody with me here? I was sitting with a student the other day and I could not remember their name to save my life. I was signing a book for them and I'm thinking, what do you do here? I need some real clarity right now because I don't remember this student's name. They had been in my office the week before discussing a really serious problem with me and I can't remember their name. I need to go see the doctor. <laughs> but that idea of clarity, it gets harder and harder to have at times. I was thinking about another situation in our school. Some years ago, we started a, um, a skilled internship at the university uh, where students would go to Midwest City Hospital. Um, and now we've been invited to OU Medical. They, they found out about our students and uh, OU Medical contacted us one day and said, you know, your students that are providing what we would call pastoral care in the hospital, uh, we've heard they're doing a good job. We like what we're hearing. Would you come to OU Medical? And so we're there. What's interesting here is that in the process of putting this thing together, when we did it several years ago, before students ever went on the floor or ever sat with a person in ICU or ever fielded a question from a person from a hospital bed that said, why did God do this to me? We, have, we gave them a self-assessment test, their empathy, their listening skills, their understanding of theological issues. We gave them that test years ago before they ever got on the floor. Guess what their scores were like? Now, this is an interesting phenomenon. There's, there's a lot of studies that indicate this. That when people don't have any experience with something and they get tested about it, what do you think they think their capacity is? Great, right? It's sky high. And as we did that the first year or two, we thought, wait a minute, we got a problem here. They're not clear on their own abilities, right? In fact, there is a study that's been done that indicates that the more incompetent a person is, the higher they rate themselves. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it's true. The more incompetent, the higher, not lower, the higher. And it's because they don't know, they don't know, right? It's okay. So what we did was we kind of saw this in the data after a couple of iterations of it, and we decided we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to throw them to the wolves first. <laughs> we're going to make them go to the ICU unit. We gave them a little training. I mean, we didn't just throw them in there. We, we sat down with them a little bit, talked to them. They got a little classroom training. Uh, and so we decided we would take them after a little bit of classroom training and then put them in the ICU unit. 
and put them in the hospital rooms with people they had no idea who they were. There's a couple times we're back on the door like this, pushing people in to make them go in. Because they are now getting questions like, if God's a good God, why did he let this happen to me? Now all of a sudden their theology classes seem a little more important. (laughs) Or why is God not answering my prayer? Uh, Suddenly their Bible classes seem to be a little more important. And what was fascinating was that after the students were on the floor in the work for a couple of weeks, their scores went where? Down. Fascinating, isn't it? That whenever we get some clarity about reality, whenever we get some opportunity to get clear, and that's a challenge, isn't it, for all of us, not just students, but for all of us to have Clarity In this passage, I, I'm just saying I, I, I'm seeing some things here, if I will, about clarifying or getting some clarity about this matter. And so we're going to look here in John chapter uh, 20 here. And so uh, after the story of Jesus appearing in verse 24, it says, but Didymus, one, or Thomas, who was one of the 12, called Didymus, that means the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the imprint of the nails, and put my finger in the place of the nails, and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. Jesus came to the doors and ha- that had been shut and stood in their midst and said, peace be with you. Now remember, that's a similar uh, uh, greeting that Jesus had given before with the 12. And we uh, discussed that. Then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it in my side and do not be unbelieving, but be believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God, And Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who did not see and yet believe. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing in him, you may have life in his name. Now, I just want to kind of walk through this passage. It's been fascinating to me, and I, just over the last couple of weeks as we've been trying to get there, there's just interesting thing here. I want, to, I want to suggest, first of all, this clarity of clarity of why you don't buy a Mac. <laughs> I asked, I asked uh, them today, why is this doing? They said, it's a Microsoft sca- a, a program running on a Mac. So, Hallelujah. The first one is this. I can tell you what it is. The first one is this. Oh, boy. Oh, here we go. Are we back to that? How did the early church do without PowerPoint? Right. Here we go. Something happened. Something's happening here. Anyway, forget it. First blank. Clarity and community. Clarity, this is the wrong slide, guys. Something, here we go. Here we go. Clarity in the midst of community. 
I'm going to make it work. <laughs> Clarity in the midst of community. Fascinating to me here uh, that in this uh, matter of Thomas, that Jesus appears to these disciples earlier and Thomas is not there. And I'm thinking about that, and, and I'm, as I'm reading and, and studying this a little bit, I'm wondering about this clarity and community. You know, is Thomas home brooding about the incredible sorrow that he's experienced? That would make, that'd make sense, wouldn't it? Uh, is he separating himself from this dangerous group? I mean, these guys are probably going to be hunted here, maybe by the Romans, that's at least what they think. I, I don't know. I mean, there are lots of different possibilities and legitimate ones, I would imagine, but it's interesting to me here that as I read this and kept reflecting and thinking about this, that this idea of clarity and community, it dawned on me as I'm reading this work of this, that every time that Jesus appears to somebody, it's always in a group. Think about that. It's always in a group. I mean, you, you, you think about the gospels. Now, I told you that in the John account, it's a, a bit different than the other gospel accounts because the other gospel accounts tell us, and John just, it's not part of his concern, that there's more than Mary at the garden. It's Mary and the other Mary, or Luke says they're Mary and the other women. And so it's interesting that, that Jesus reveals himself to that group. On, on, on this group of disciples, there's, there's a group of them. They're all together. On the road to Emmaus, there's at least two. On the mountain in Galilee in Luke 24, you go back and look at that, there's maybe 500. And then the disciples here in 21, we'll see soon, are fishing together. Now, what are you making of this, Cliff? I don't know. What am I? Here we go. No. <laughs> I just want to ask you to consider something here that I think is typically American. The American psyche that values individualism above the group. That that values individual over the community. That's not the world of the New Testament. The world of the New Testament is its community that matters. And here we sometimes, if we're not careful perhaps, that in our own relationship with Jesus, we want it, be careful with me now, be careful with me here, we want it too personal. No, it's not that actually. It's we want it private. And there's a difference. The Christian life is personal in that I have to make the decision and I have to decide, but it isn't private. And as I'm reading this, I'm thinking Jesus always revealed himself to groups. Isn't that interesting? Do, do, we, make too much, or do, we, do we make too much of the individual? Remember, Jesus said in Matthew 18, 20, where two, or what? Or three are gathered together, what? In my name, what? I'm there. I, I'm just telling you, I grew up in a church that valued the individual so much, I thought that my spirituality was really developed in my private prayer time by myself. Anybody else? My, my sense of spiritual life and spiritual vitality was privatized. It had little to do with the community. Now, that's part of that American psyche. That, this is not true around other parts of the world. Other parts of the world, it's the community, it's the tribe, it's the group. But in America, it's about me. And if Jesus doesn't reveal himself to what? Me, 
then something's wrong. I want to just ask you to consider that there's some clarity here that may be being brought to us that in terms of Jesus' revelation of himself, it's often in groups. I've been interested, maybe you've heard of the Quakers, you know, the people that made oatmeal and uh, (laughs) they they invented it. Yeah. Uh, The Quakers... Uh, have what they call, and there's, there's things about the Quakers that you know, I would have difficulty with, and you probably would too, you know, the hair they have on oh, anyway. uh, you. Um, the Quakers, whenever they ever came to a situation where they um, need to make a decision, they would have a get, this is what they called it, to get the sense meeting. If we had a decision to make or we had a concern about our life or we, or, or we had something that, that we were troubled about or a need for our community, we'd, say, we'd get together and we'd have a get the sense meeting. And together, people would gather in, in silence. Boy, that'd be a hard meeting for me <laughs> after a while. But you, you know, what they're saying is that Jesus reveals himself in community. When two or three are gathered in his name. I just want to ask you, are you trying too hard to get Jesus to reveal himself just to you? Or are you trying too hard to think that if you were just more spiritual and if you prayed more at home that Jesus would reveal himself to you? Or is it possible you need to rethink your participation in community? I just see this throughout the New Testament. That Jesus is always showing up in a group. I, I, I discovered this long, long time ago. I, you know, I talk, when I get together with people and we're in a group, I can pray so much better. Is anybody like that? Can you pray more effectively or with more clarity? Anybody? Yeah, I can. And I used to feel bad about that because I grew up again in a tradition that made me think that if you really know Jesus, it's all this personal, individual, prayer closet by yourself thing instead of community. Timothy or or Thomas missed Jesus because he decided he would do this on his own. He'll process this grief on his own. He'll process the fear on his own. Jesus shows up, he's not there. Because Jesus shows up in the community. Now, I, 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 just, I, I just know this in terms of over the years in my own life, and I, as I've been a pastor and been a, been a professor, that this Lone Ranger kind of Christianity is deeply in the psyche of the American experiment. It's really deep in us. And in the Bible world or the biblical world, it's a community matter where we come together, where we, where we learn, where we listen, where, where we do. People say, well, you know what? It's just Jesus and me. And I, I said to a guy one time, I said, you know, you don't think you need people that you understand and you got it all together. Listen, let me remind you that when you have bad breath, you need somebody to tell you about it and your mouth is right under your nose. He just looked at me. Do you need somebody to tell you when you have bad breath? Yeah. And your mouth is right under your nose. You and I are not that alert. (laughs) We're not often that aware. 
And like my students who had to get some clarity after they got some experience, then they began to decide, hey, I, here's where I need to grow. John Wesley was famous for this. He uh, started a revival. He wasn't as good a preacher as George Whitfield by any stretch. Benjamin Franklin said that he heard George Whitfield preach when he was in the Americas, and he said he could hear him a mile away. Whitfield was an incredible preacher. He started a revival movement in England and it just swept England. In fact, Whitfield was the guy that talked Wesley into preaching out in the fields. So Whitfield was a huge influence on Wesley. When Whitfield was dying, he made this statement. My group is as a rope of sand. He said, I did not like Mr. Wesley Bring people together in community or groups. And now my followers are a rope of sand. Interesting. Wesley made this comment about a place called Pembrokeshire. Incredible area where he'd preached. And he said this. How many times has there been preaching in Pembrokeshire like that of an apostle? How many times has, how many, we meant a bunch of times. How many times has there been preaching like that in Pembrokeshire as that of an apostle? And yet, the no gathering together, the no putting together in small groups, and the nine out of ten who've been converted are more asleep than ever. Did you hear that? Wesley said, when a guy comes in here, or a lady, and preaches like an apostle, when you don't bring them together in community, Nine out of 10 are more asleep than ever before. Now let me say it to you again, we'll, we'll get the, I, you know, we've been in this room and the Lord willing, we're getting out of here one of these days. But community is not looking at the back of somebody else's neck. This is not community. This is teaching. This is punishment for some of you <laughs> having to come to class, Right? And we try to work to say hello to people. And I understand that. We're, we're going to get back to our class and we're going to have a big party. And we're going to, I know that's what you're missing. Because we're designed for community. I, I just want to press you a little bit here today. That get some clarity about community here. And I don't know how that gets constructed in your life. I'll just tell you this. We had a graduation. Well, I got to stop. I keep talking what about this? What if you reflected on your regular involvement in community? How are you doing in this area? How are you doing? What changes can you make? You know, I, I know there's a danger and there's a fear at times for people to get in community or small groups. And I know there's inherent problems with it. But this is where, in my judgment, the transformation and the real change happens. Is when we can look across at a table and say to one another, would you pray for me about this need? Would you help me understand what I need to do in this case? Now that can be a small group. It can be a coffee group. I'll just tell you, I, I will say this, I... And I don't know what to do about it, so I'm just, I'm just working through it a little bit. Um, I enjoy 
teaching, but I have several meetings I have during the week early in the morning to get with guys because I need community. And I need to be in a place where I can, we can talk about issues and really process them. And I don't know if you have that. I, I hope you do. If you don't, come talk to me. And we'll, we've talked about this before, of trying to find ways to make this happen. There's, there's community groups. There's the centered groups. There are lots of opportunities around here for that. But Jesus always seems to show up in a group. And for some of us, we've tried to get him to show up at our house. <laughs> and we tried to get him to show up in our private moments. And it worries us now because he doesn't seem to do that very often. But he does show up in his community when he said, where two or three are gathered, I'm there. Okay, I'm going to move on here. This second one is this clarity and faith. I, I just want to lift out a couple ideas. This is fascinating. I was talking to Becky about this the other day. She proves all my lessons here. <laughs> Um, you know, Thomas has been misaligned, he, or uh, maligned. What, what do we call him? Doubting. Doubting Thomas, yeah. And you know, that, that, that really isn't a good sign because when you study and look at the person of Thomas in John, if you go look at John chapter 11, when Jesus is raising Lazarus from the dead and he's talking, we're going to Jerusalem and it's going to be tough. What does Thomas say? Do you remember what he said? He says this. Yeah, you got it, Eric. He said, let's go die with him. That's pretty courageous. Chapter 11. Go, go back there and look at that. The, chapter 11, verse 16. He said, hey, we'll go die with him. I, I'm, not, I'm not afraid of this. I, 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 let's go. He, he had courage. He also had honesty. Um, in, in chapter 14 earlier, when Jesus says, uh, I'm going away, and you know the way I'm going, and I love Thomas because he says, no, we don't. <laughs> Okay, you ever been around people that you know were just enablers and every time you said, yeah, oh yeah, right, oh yeah, 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 you know. Heard a story about one of the United States presidents years ago was uh, in, in, greeting people as they came in. I believe it was Harding and uh, people were being greeted as they came to the White House and he, he just didn't believe anybody's listening to him. They were just there to, to be with him. He said, my mother just died. And they said, oh good. <laughs> you know, they're not listening. They're not really, uh, oh, good, yeah, oh, my, he's, he's smiling. Uh, my mother just died, uh, yeah, oh, oh good. Wait, great, Mr. President. You know, we're, you know people like that, that they're just going to agree to anything and everything. That's not Thomas. He said, whoa, 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 we don't know where you're going. Let's be clear. See, see there's some clarity about faith here I want to ask you to consider. There's some clarity. I don't think I've noticed this before. But what did the other disciples say in verse 25? We've what? It's a little community building here called reading. <laughs> We've what? We've seen him. Now, does Thomas make some outlandish, ridiculous request? What does he say? Unless I see him. You got to see him. Good, good on you. Unless I see him, I'm not believing. Is that a doubter? I don't think so. I don't, I don't think that's doubting. He's saying, that's what you got, right? That's what I need. You saw him, now I want to see him. Now, here's the point, I think, in this regard, and this always is a concern to me. It's the role of evidence in faith. 
the role of evidence and faith. You remember in the bucket list? You're, y'all are Christians. You probably didn't watch that movie. Let me tell you real quick. There's a scene in the bucket list when Jack Nicholson and Morgan Freeman are in the plane. They're flying over the polar ice cap. And, uh, I mean, they're in a plane. They're not flying themselves. But no. So, I got to stop. They're flying over the polar and, and, and Morgan Freeman says, something wonderful what God made. And, of course, Nicholson, you know, he's not playing his part. He's telling you his life story when he says, oh, you mean you believe in fairy dust like that? And Morgan Freeman's only response is, do you remember? I just have faith. When I saw that, I thought, that's about the dumbest thing I've ever heard. In what? In who? See, faith requires an object and a reliable object in which there is evidence or it's presumption and stupidity. Right? I mean, I read, I, I saw, I, you know, heard, the, I thought, that's crazy. It's like that there's Value to have faith in faith. That's not the New Testament. See, Thomas is saying, I need some evidence before I'm going to believe this stuff. Look, look down here lower in, where we fit, there in verse uh, 30 and 31. With many other signs Jesus performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written, but these are written so that you can believe. What's that? Evidence. Listen, the idea of just believing because somebody told you, or the idea of believing because you feel good, or the idea of believing just because everybody else believes, is intellectual suicide. Is there any evidence? That's what, that's what Thomas is saying. I remember when I was working at UPS, I was griping the Lord one day when I, when I kept saying, Lord, none of these guys are becoming Christians and I'm witnessing and, you know, I'm a theology student. They should get this by now. It's like the Spirit just nudged me and said, you know why? Because this is going to demand their life and they're not stupid. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing there's some evidence that you believe for your faith. I'm guessing, you know, Jesus even appealed to this. Look back at chapter 14 real quick. When Jesus is telling them all this kind of stuff and man, oh man, it's blowing their minds. Jesus said in John 14, 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or otherwise, if you, you, know, if you can't swallow that because I said it, believe because of the works that I've done. What's that? Evidence. Now again, I, 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 I'm not saying this is an easy thing or I'm not suggesting that it just is a matter of, of, of uh, uh, just read a couple books. I'm simply suggesting this, that either our faith is based in evidence that we can rely on and have confidence in or we're in a pipe dream. Many of you probably know of Josh McDowell. He wrote a great little book. If you haven't read it, I recommend it called More Than a Carpenter. It's easily read. It's not, it's not highly technical, but it will help you with some understanding of the reliability of the Bible, the reliability of the resurrection, the reliability of the Christian canon, all, all those matters. Well, Josh McDowell's made his living after he was an atheist that he became a Christian. And his son, Sean, came to him one day. They were in Colorado on a vacation and Sean's about 19, about ready to go to the university. And he comes to his dad and he says, Dad, you know, I know I love you and I respect you. And I, and I, and I, and I know you believe all this stuff. 
but I don't. And so when I go to the university, I'm going to study this. Sean, who is now a PhD from Biola, tells the story that when he said that to his dad, his dad said, great. Because if you'll be honest with the evidence, you'll know there's something true to the gospel. You know, again, pe- people are, are, are often throwing things out about why it's not reliable. I just say, Let, let's work through it. But evidence. God, I don't think, asks us just to believe, just to be believing. There's no inherent value in believing. John even here says, look, these things were written for a purpose so that you knowing and hearing and writing about them will believe. Belief and faith and trust is not some jump in the dark. It has to be based on evidence. For me, I tell my students this, you have to come to some conclusion on this. And that's this. You have to live your life on the probability of the evidence. You know, you can't live on the possibility. Is it possible an airplane? You know, I've, I've flown in a couple times before on a trip and we flew over the church. Is it possible that an airplane has lost its hydraulics and it's about to come into this building? Is that possible? Is it probable? Not likely. What's the probability that the evidence that we have archaeologically, evidence in textual, textual matters, the evidence in historical research, what's the probability the gospel's true? I would suggest there's a high, high probability. You're going to say, I mean, it's possible, is it? Sure, I'll, I'll concede that's possible. It's all a big lie. But you don't live like that, and I don't either. It's possible somebody's going to put poison in my food at lunch, besides Becky. No. <laughs> it's her Mother's Day gift. <laughs> right? It's possible we're going to get killed in a car wreck going home. But none of us are going to stay here the rest of the day because we don't live like that. What's the probability? Have you looked into this? Look into more than a carpenter, Josh McDowell. Look into, if you will, by F.F. Bruce, are the New Testament documents reliable? F.F. Bruce. Okay, I got to hurry. It's interesting to me, the role of the will. Look what, there's an interesting phrase here that uh, Thomas says. He says, unless I see his hands on, I will not believe. The will. What role does the will have in faith? You know, Thomas says this, I will not believe it. The way it's written in Greek, it means I will certainly not believe if this doesn't happen. You know, the, the idea that I can have the evidence and know the material and still not believe. I remember hearing an interview years and years ago about John Lennon, the Beatle. And um, when, when Lennon said, he made a comment, he said, it wasn't that we didn't believe the Bible was not, was, wasn't true. It wasn't that we didn't believe Christianity was true. It said it was inconvenient for what we wanted to do with uh, running around with all the girls in rock and roll. That's what he said. It was inconvenient. So my will, 
I've asked people this before. If I could give you enough evidence to give some sense of probability, would you believe? And I've had them say, no. And I said, then we're wasting our time here. You've already made up your mind. I mean, I think we can qualify people on times and say, look, if I could show you this, if, if I could give you a preponderance of evidence, would you then believe? No, because it's going to disturb my lifestyle. It's going to disturb my values. It's going to disturb my life. So, so, so this idea of the will has to be engaged. And I will suggest to you, as I'm going to say here, that, that, that the idea here is that evidence can help move the balance of power to the point of I will believe. I will. I know emotion is important. I have one or two of them. My students are not convinced of that. I'm not a very emotional person by nature. I know emotion has a part in this. But the executive of the human personality is the will. I will believe based on the evidence that I have. And sometimes people have to at least be approached to this. Is it really an evidence issue? Like when people say, well, there's not enough evidence to believe the Bible. I say, okay, how have you looked into this? Most of the time, I ha they haven't. Maybe they read one book, you know. But the will. Is your will engaged? If there's enough evidence, will you? And so Thomas says that, unless I get this, I won't. Now, now watch this. This is interesting. And he says, so then Jesus comes inside with all the disciples. We're back to that again. He comes in the door. Here's the evidence. Now, it's, this is interesting to me. Maybe, maybe it is to you. That what Jesus said, reach here your finger and see my hands and reach here and put it in my side and be, don't be unbelieving. Does, is there anything here in the text that suggests that Thomas did that? No. See, Thomas had said, hey, if I can't touch him, if I can't put my hand, I'm not. Listen, he had enough evidence at that point that his will flipped. What did he say? My Lord and my God. The evidence flipped his will. Or he was willing to say, you can imagine this from a Jewish young man. This is blasphemy on several levels. Yahweh is not in a bodily form in their thinking. To call Jesus my Lord and my God. Now, we're going to hear from Mary Jane Dawson. I'll give her about two, a minute and a half to get ready. I, I've been thinking about this for a long time. That... This idea of coming to faith, our mind in some sense with evidence has to be satisfied before our will can really get engaged. If people are living their Christian life simply by emotion, that thing sort of runs out after a while. But if their faith has had both evidence and their will engaged, they come up. And I asked Mary Jane to do this. We've got a microphone here. Mary Jane will tell you her story here in a second. But Mary Jane became, became a Christian later in life. Wasn't an 18-year-old kid at youth camp. And so y'all smile a lot. She's nervous. But she's going to do a great job. So would you come up here and share with us your testimony? 
I'm going to just read this because I can't talk very well. (laughs) I did not grow up in a Christian home. From the time my parents married, we moved six or more times in the northwest part of the United States. The only time I remember going to church and hearing about God were when my family visited my mother's parents once or twice a year. My grandfather took my sister and I to church. I remember Sunday school as being chaotic and scary and not fitting in because I didn't live there and I didn't know anyone and being confused. My mother's father sent us Bibles, children's Bibles, every year with pictures and stories, especially for kids, but I don't remember looking at them much. He treated us very well, and we could, have, we could tell he loved us very much. He told us God loved us, and while staying with them, he would pray at meals and sit with us on our twin beds at night before we went to sleep, and we would play, we would pray the now I lay me down to sleep prayer. He read his Bible at the breakfast table before and during breakfast, but still talked with us. We just thought it was how Grandpa lived. Christmas was always about Santa and being good to get presents, eating big meals and spending the vacation with our families. Both sets of grandparents lived in the same small town. Three experiences stand out to me in my interaction with Christians. One of Grandpa's acquaintances, an older lady at the church, asked to talk with my sister and I one morning after church. My mom and my grandpa let us go with her. We were very young at the time. I was probably seven or eight, and my sister was probably three or four. She took us up into the church, into a tiny little room upstairs, closed the door, and started interrogating us, blurting out, Do you believe in God? in a serious and scary way for little kids. We started answering yes just to get out of there. Then she took us back to my mother and grandpa, and I felt we, I had gone through some kind of initiation. When I was in junior high or early high school, my family went to visit our grandparents. The Sunday school youth group was taking some kids to Six Flags in Texas. Grandpa asked me if I'd like to go. I said yes, but I didn't realize that no one would keep track of me or be a companion. Most of the kids were my age or older. When we arrived at the park, everyone dispersed off the bus in different directions, and I was left standing there by myself. So I wandered around and got a drawing made of myself to give to my mother. I didn't really do much or write anything, and I met the group back at the bus at the directed time and came home with my drawing. I remember when we lived in Colorado, a young woman came by the house during the summer and mom and I were home. She wanted to talk to me about church and God. Mom and I let her in, but I didn't know what to do when she asked me if I wanted to be saved. I looked toward mom and she just said to do what I wanted to do. I told the woman I wasn't ready and she left. My parents didn't talk about God. They didn't explain about Jesus or talk about Christians. That was just something my mother's parents did. Not much of anything was explained or taught in our house. You knew when you did something wrong, but it wasn't really explained either. So I was reluctant to be around God believers, and I avoided them. When my sister and I graduated junior college, got jobs, and left home, it was assumed we knew something about life, but nothing was ever explained or directed except maybe work hard and save money. I think my father and mother assumed that the tiny bit of church going that we had would give us some type of moral base 
so that we wouldn't do anything bad. But my sister and I lived for our own desires and wants, chasing after men, money, and fun. We went out dancing and drinking. We dated a lot of men. We had car crashes and money problems. We had bare minimum college educations, working in low-wage jobs with low expectations. We just wanted to find the right guy to make us happy and live with all the goodies we could afford. My sister was drinking and partying in her late 20s and early 30s. She backed off of this lifestyle and found herself going to church with a friend where she was saved and gave up drinking and partying and started visiting church once a week and bought a Bible. She tried to influence me, but I wasn't interested. I thought I would lose control of my life and would have to go into the mission field or be like a puppet for God. I didn't have any good Christian friends or acquaintances in my life to tell me what it would be like or show me. Some of my coworkers who were Christian didn't really act that differently from anyone else. The men still had affairs, and the women talked bad about other people. They all seemed prejudiced and phobic about people different from themselves. Finally, by my late 30s, I was tired of the life I was living. I wanted something more. I looked for it in organizations, outdoor groups, different men or clubs, classes or hobbies. Nothing really worked. After dating a Catholic man and going to church with him a few times, I thought maybe this is what I needed to pursue, God. My mother developed breast cancer, and dealing with a serious illness of someone close to me was quite a wake-up call. While she was in surgery, I went out to an open area, looked up to God, and told him that if he saved my mother's life, I would give myself to him, the old let's make a deal. She came out of surgery great, and I didn't have to have, and she didn't have to have chemo or radiation. She only had to take a pill the rest of her life. So at 38 years old, I started looking around for churches. I visited Methodist and Presbyterian, Catholic and Baptist, and many kinds of non-denominational churches. I read The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel in 1998, I think it came out. Since my sister was going to a non-denominational church, I decided to look for one of those. I found one close to my home and went on Sunday morning in December of 1999. After many Sundays, I was saved hearing a sermon about Jacob wrestling with the angel. I could identify with that, being stubborn and independent like Jacob. When they called for those who felt like Jacob and would like to come forward. Before I knew it, I was standing, and I looked to the left towards the end of the row of seats. The people sitting there pulled their feet in, and I walked down the aisle. There, I was directed to sit down next to the preacher's wife and repeated the prayer. They wanted me to get baptized as soon as possible, but I said I wanted to get counseled on it first. After three weeks of once-a-week appointments, me asking lots of questions and getting counseled by a pastor there, I thought I was ready. That Sunday, a pastor baptized me, and after coming up out of the water, I held on to him as they closed the viewing doors in the baptistry pool. I let go of him, stood away, and we both started giggling. He told me that he had laughed for three days after being baptized. My mother and a friend were able to be there for me. My friend took a picture of me coming up out of the water, which is dated February 27, 2000, so I was 38 years old when I was saved. Thank you. Thank you.
Um, I wanted you to hear that. I've known Mary Jane for, for some time, and I know she came to Christ later in life. And as you know, that is incredibly unusual. You hear a story? She read the case for Christ. She had questions. She needed answers. It wasn't just believe or pray this prayer. There really was this movement from evidence to her will. From evidence to her will. I just thought you need to hear that. And uh, we've got some other stories. Uh, I'm trying to work these in as we teach that you know that there's people around here. Maybe, maybe you've had a similar journey. Maybe, maybe you want to talk to Mary Jane about it. Or, or maybe you have a friend that's having a similar journey and you want to talk to Mary Jane about it. But I want, I want to ask you, thank you again. I want to ask you to consider then, what if you determine which of these two, is it evidence or the will? Is your challenge in living out your faith? Which one? Do you really have a solid evidence for what you believe? Or is it that you may have some evidence, but you really haven't kicked your will in gear to say, I will believe, I will follow this, I will do and live in accordance with this. What can you begin to do to address that this week? I've given you a couple of books if you have evidence, if you need to talk to a pastor or me or someone. Or if you need to just take some time to be with a friend in community to say, can you help me? Can you give me some guidance in following Jesus? It's interesting to me that Jesus makes another statement, and I'm just going to read this to you. But this is for you, for me, for Mary Jane, for anybody. When Jesus answered Thomas and said to him, after he'd said, my Lord and my God, notice what Jesus said. Jesus said to him, because you've seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who do not see and yet have believed. It's you. Did you know that Jesus pronounces a blessing on you today? If you work through the evidence and you allow your will to kick in gear, this, this word here, blessed, you see it in the Sermon on the Mount. It means fortunate. <clears throat> it, it, means, uh, it means fortunate. It means to be envied. Karl Barth translated it like this. I love his translation. You lucky bums. <laughs> I love that translation. <laughs> it's a little loose. But today, clarity, clarity. Clarity as it relates to community. Clarity as it relates to faith. Clarity as it relates to blessed. That's you. That's me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are blessed. We're blessed uh, to have your word. We're blessed to have your spirit that brings your word into our hearts and to our minds. We're blessed to have people who give a testimony and tell us about their own struggle and their own journey to faith. We're blessed that we have these people in this room that even though sometimes we're just looking at the back of each other's neck, we know we're here for each other and we're learning to live in our lives for you. So would you bring an even greater sense of clarity to all of us this week? And may we live each and every day clear about community, about faith, and about being blessed. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.